<clears throat> we have been uh, working our way through Matthew, and uh, we're going to pick up again in Matthew chapter 8, so if you're finding that in your Bible, here's your opportunity. Thank you all for blessing us this morning. And Isaac, um, that, that is a lot harder than it looks, keeping up with the drums. Thank you for uh, putting forth a new skill we had not known before in uh, leading and helping in worship. This has already been a wonderful church service. We've prayed for people who are going to be actively carrying the gospel, a gospel that is factual and real, that will touch lives specifically where they have hurt and where they have need. And that's fantastic. But people from our church who regularly go to other countries to be a blessing to somebody else, to help build a church or a school, to, to help meet the needs of some folks in another, in another place where they don't have the blessings we have. And that's, that's awesome. And we got to participate as a church in praying for them. And I hope you will continue to pray for them. Magnificent things happen when we follow the call of God. Today we got to pray for a family and for a, a, a baby, a new, a five-month-old little girl, and lift that entire family up as a, as a body and say, we stand with you in dedicating your child. And we do. We believe in what you're doing. And believe that as parents, as we dedicate our children, as we hand our children over to God, we in a, in a very special way invite them into a blessing from God that is not available if we don't do it. So, praise God. Amen. We found out today that when Pastor Tim is falling and about to die, the first thing he thinks is sermon illustration. <laughs> that is weird. And preachers are the only people in the world who have that kind of feeling. But I am telling you, it is common among us. Weird as it may be, it's preacher weird. And as we talk this morning, I want to talk to you about the call of God on our lives. From this story in the end of Matthew 8. I want to talk to you about the fact that it's disruptive. That when God places a call on your life, it's disruptive. In the examples we've seen today, it's not easy to get to Africa or Bolivia. You have to go about that. You have to make that happen. You don't just show up in Bolivia one day or show up in Africa one day magically. You have to make plans and put forth effort and, and put yourself out there and risk embarrassment and, and who knows what all. You just go unknown and unknowing. And you follow the call of God. And it disrupts your life and your norms and your, your, your summer and your whatever. Those of you who are parents know that children are disruptive. And they remain disruptive. I now have children who are in, in their 30s. And they're still disruptive to my life. They continue to disrupt what's going on in your life for their entire life, apparently. 
or at least for your entire life. And when you dedicate them to the Lord, that call on your life adds a layer of complication to it. Because now you've, you've armed yourself and come forward for the battle saying, I'm in. No matter what comes, I'm going to be praying. No matter what comes, I am fighting back against sin and its influence in my child's life. And those of you who dedicated your children 20 and 30 years ago, know you're still in. You're still doing it. You're still praying. You're still holding them up. In fact, if you if you have the blessings of being grand, grandparents, then you're holding up those grandchildren as well. When God places a call on your life, it's disruptive. It's redemptive. And it's transformative. It's disruptive. It's redemptive. And it's transformative. This morning, I want you to, uh, to uh, point your attention to the men who missed the boat. Because I think there are some of us who don't answer the call. Some of us who have been called to face something for God, who have been called to go somewhere and do something, and we've said no. For, what, for one reason or another, we've held back. Because we know it's disruptive. We know it's going to cause us difficulty. It's going to, going to throw our life into a, into a turmoil that we didn't actually plan for. And here we are this morning and the preacher's bringing it up and you thought that was forgotten. I want to talk to those of us who missed the boat for a bit. Who missed that high calling on your life. For whatever reason it came. And as we look at this story this morning, I want to specifically look at a couple of examples. So Jesus in this story, if you recall, has been up on the hillside preaching. In this preaching, we've heard him go through those statements. Blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those. And disrupt the way everybody thought about the world. As he was getting up to come, to come out of that moment and walk down the mountain. Well, you wouldn't call it a mountain. In Tennessee, they'd call it a mountain. We have real mountains in California. They have hills called mountains back there. This is one of those hills called a mountain. And as he's beginning to come down, a leper rolls in and disrupts everything. Then a, he gets to the town to where he's headed. He gets to Capernaum and a centurion rolls in and disrupts everything. It's been just this very confusing day. He walks into Peter's house. Peter's mother-in-law is sick. Before he can have dinner, he has to heal the cook. Heals the cook. She goes about. If you look at what the text says, he heals Peter's mother-in-law and she immediately gets up and starts cooking. Apparently, that was her calling. It is the calling for some. And those of us who have been blessed by people who have been called to cook know when it's a calling. We also know when it's not. Experientially. The Bible says the next thing Jesus does is try to get away. 
He heals his mother, mother heals, heals Peter's mother-in-law and everybody they bring to him that evening. And as it's getting towards the end of the day, maybe even getting towards dark, he says to the disciples, let's go across. He says, when the, as he sees the crowds gathering, he says to the disciples, let's go across the lake. Basically, he says, let's get out of here. Let's get away from all this stuff. Jesus is probably ultimately exhausted. And we can tell from the story that he's probably exhausted. But before he gets into the boat, he starts to run into some people as well. As we look at these guys, I want to give you this sentence. Following Christ must be primary among all other responsibilities. Following Christ must be primary among all other responsibilities. Following Christ does not throw away your other responsibilities. It just becomes the primary responsibility. It becomes first in line above all the others. It becomes the primary responsibility. Does that make sense? Does it work that way in your life? Don't answer. Just think about it. Is following Christ primary in your life today? Not, don't, don't, I don't know about yesterday. I don't think you have to worry about tomorrow yet. But in this moment right now, what would it take to get there if it's not? Following Christ is primary among all other responsibilities. <clears throat> so here we are in Matthew chapter 8, beginning of verse 18. When Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave the command to depart to the other side. Okay, guys, too many people are gathering around. The city's going a little crazy. People are filling up all of Capernaum. Let's get out of Dodge. So they head for the lake where Peter or James or John, somebody's boat is waiting. Now, we know Peter loaned his boat to him before, and maybe this is still Peter's boat. We don't know. He gets into a boat. It's not very big. If you get to go to Israel, go and see the Jesus boat. It's not that big. The whole thing would fit across the middle of this platform. So from here to about there, you would pay, you would take the entirety of the boat. And it's only about this wide. So 12 guys getting into this boat's a little bit cramped. It's a, it's a boat designed for just one or two people to fish from. It's a fishing platform, not a little luxury cruiser. And so when they get onto this boat, it's a pretty small place that they're in. They know because they found one of these first century boats buried down in the mud, preserved actually by that moist mud from being completely lost and decaying completely. The ribs of it and the parts of it are still there. We have pictures of people back in the 20s using a very similar boat. So apparently that boat was used for hundreds, even thousands of years on the Sea of Galilee. That kind of boat. So they go to get in the boat. They're headed for the boat. Get the picture. They're in Capernaum. Not a big place. Not a big place. It's it, This lot that the church is on, this five acres that the church is on, the whole of Capernaum would fit in here. So they get, they're in that space and they head for the lake, which is just at the shore. It's not far. Capernaum goes right down to the water and they head down for the, for the beach. And as they're headed for the beach, Jesus encounters two different people. When he got into the boat, his disciple, oh, wait, wait, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me finish the story before we get to the two guys. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. So who's following him? His disciples. The text says his followers are following him. His disciples are following him. And suddenly, so they're in the boat. They apparently have cast off. Matthew's not filling in a lot of data, but apparently they're out in the water now. And suddenly a great tempest, <coughs> tempest arose. 
so much wind through tempest that it came right out of me. A great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with the waves. But Jesus, that's the he, was doing what? Sleeping. That's why I think he was exhausted from the day's experiences. From preaching, teaching, healing, his walk to and from, the healing at Peter's house, all the people gathering around, all the energy put forth both physically and spiritually. He's wiped out. About 1 o'clock, 1.30 most afternoons, I get home, sometimes 2, and I hit the couch. Usually, if it's been a busy day here at church, by about 10 minutes after I hit the couch, I have disappeared from the world in which we live. And I am asleep. I don't need to sleep very long. My wife will usually wake me up in 10 minutes or 15 minutes, something like that, because usually it's time to eat. But that just just putting forth the energy of ministry can really wear you out. Jesus has been doing this all day long. Think of Jesus doing what we're doing right now for maybe 12 or 14 hours. And going through and healing and touching lives. He's exhausted. There's a storm raging and Jesus is asleep. The only storms I usually sleep through are my grandchildren's noises at this point in life. And they can run around the house and I can sleep right on through it. Sometimes I just keep my eyes closed so they don't know I'm awake, just so that they don't come and disturb me. Don't tell them, though. But Jesus is zonked out. So let's back up to these potential passengers for the boat. The potential passengers in the previous verses. Verse 19. A certain scribe came to him. Now you need to stop and get what that is. A scribe is a person of pretty good authority in the first century in the Jewish community. A scribe's a person who can read. Now, you you take take for granted the idea that most people in America read, but that has not been the case in most places around the world throughout history. Reading was something that only a certain level of intelligence and a certain level of monetary support meant that you could do. Learning to read meant you weren't out plowing fields. Learning to read meant that you had some scholarly endeavors that you were sorting through. Most of the Jewish people learned the scriptures, but they learned them by rote, by memory. These young Jewish boys would be taught to recite the scripture, but they couldn't actually read it unless it had been taught to them. And so being a scribe already sets you apart because you can read. So you're probably in that, in, in, in Israel there are more than other places, so you're probably in the top 25% of the educated. Okay? So already, by just simply being able to read, the scribe is a little bit above most folks. You realize Jesus is, uh, is able to read, right? So Jesus is among this group of slightly differently educated people. He's got a little more going on than most of the folks around him. A scribe comes up to him. Now, a scribe is also a person who writes. The word kind of means someone who records things. Originally, scribes would actually record mostly uh, records of sales, so they were like the cash register. And they literally would post a scribe on the corner in the middle of the town. A scribe would just be sitting there sort of in his spot with his little little desk. And if you were going to have an exchange, if, if these two decided to get married and got a marriage license, somebody would have to write it up for them. So they'd come to the corner where the scribe was, they'd pay him a little bit, and he'd write up their commitment, their covenant, their marriage license. Okay, If they were going to sell something, then they would come to the scribe and he would record that sale and make sure that everybody had copies of what was just sold so that everything was clear. 
That job, as these people became more and more valuable, it's not just in Israel, it's in Egypt, it's in Greece, it's in Rome, it's all around. That job, they began to recognize when Israel came back from Babylon that they needed the ability to, con- to keep track of and write down the scriptures. That their, their problem, part of the reason they left and part of the reason they had lost for their relationship with God is they did not have connection with the scriptures. And so they started to employ these people who could read and write as people who were writing down the scriptures, copying the text. And that's a, it becomes a very highly developed skill where um, some, some very careful mechanisms are put in place to make sure everything is done properly and that they get all the right words down. They count them. They count the center word. They count the, for, they count, uh, the total number of words. A whole bunch of things are put in place to make sure they get an accurate scroll. And these people, because they're so familiar with the text from writing it and copying it down, start to become teachers of the law. Their specific role was to keep track of the rules that went along with the text. So they're very, very important people in the culture and in the society. This scribe would have been above average in his community. He would have been fairly highly respected in his community. He would be fairly well educated in his community. And he comes to Jesus and he says, Teacher. Not a word they use lightly. This is the word used for rabbi. Does Jesus have rabbinic credentials? No. No, he's this guy from Nazareth who's been out teaching. This particular day, he has set the world on fire. So don't forget the context. He's doing a lot of things going on. This guy's recognizing the authority and power of what's happening. And he comes up to Jesus and he says, Teacher, rabbi, I will follow you wherever you go. Good call, good call, right? Do you think it's true? Ever gotten a little too exuberant in your commitment? Now, I know it doesn't happen to everybody. It happens to us sanguine folks more often than others. There's a certain personality type that jumps in before they actually check the depth of the water. This guy is exuberant about this. He's looking, he sees something of value here. Now, a scribe was getting paid for his role. He may have seen something of monetary possibilities here. Whatever it was that he sees, he says, I'm in and I am in no matter what. Wherever you go, I go. Whatever you do, I do. I am with you all the way, 100%, all the time. We hear Peter do this with Jesus quite a bit, right? We hear Peter's voice echoing this same kind of con, kind of signed two same kind of statement. How often does Peter actually do it? This guy seems to me like a guy you want on your team. He's excited to be on the team, right? When when the kids are all lined up to be picked, he's the going, oh, pick me, pick me, pick me, pick me. This is that guy. Pick me. Jesus isn't so cool with this guy. Jesus says to him, this is my Eeyore sort of look at Jesus. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man doesn't even have a pillow. 
I'll go. I'll follow you anywhere. Well, are you sure? Isn't that what Jesus is saying? Isn't Jesus saying anywhere is a lot? Following me wherever I go, that's a big commitment. Are you sure you want to make that commitment? Are you sure you're that into this? Are you sure you're willing to go to the thing to do the, to do the things I'm going to do? I don't have a home. I have no place to. I sleep in other people's. I couch surf. That's my whole gig. That means you're in for couch surfing, I get the couch. That means you're dirt floor surfing. Jesus is really putting a check on this guy. He says, hold on, before you get too excited, count the costs. I love this about Jesus. He does this regularly. He says to people at, a regular, at regular incidences, hey, before you get too far along here, figure it out. Think about what you're doing. Count the cost. For the person who's overly excited and ready to dive in, Jesus says, wait, before you jump in, let's go see how deep it is. Let's find out. Before you hurt yourself, just wait a second. Just cool your roll just for a minute, and then we'll go. Okay? So the first guy, all excited, Jesus says, well... You say you want to follow me, but do you really want to follow me? Second guy comes along. Now, this is all in the transition from Peter's house to the boat. These guys want to get in the boat with Jesus. This other guy comes along. Another one. Note who this says. Another of his, what? Disciples. So this is one of the guys who's been following Jesus, right? You get the picture? This is one of the ones who's already been along for part of this. After he sees today's events, he's questioning whether he really wants to do this. He's really wondering whether he wants to do this. Another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, are you familiar with the story? Some of you have read this passage before. Do you remember what Jesus says to him? Jesus says, follow me, come now, and let the dead bury the dead. Now, let me stop for a second. Is this not the coldest thing Jesus ever says to somebody? Is this not just the coldest, I don't care about your personal problems, suck it up? Is it? Well, stop and think for a second. In the culture, in the times, if your father had died, would you be away from home listening to some preacher? Mm -mm. one of the most important responsibilities of young men in their families was to be present when their family needed them, especially when their father died. It's interesting. They also buried their dead very quickly. They did not have embalming. And it's a very warm climate. Let the church consider how much they would want to get about business where this is concerned. So if his father had already died, it is highly unlikely that he would be standing there in front of Jesus. So now we have to ask ourselves, okay, what is he saying then? He's saying, my father's pretty old. And he's, maybe he's a little sickly. I'm going to go back home 
And I'm going to stay there. And I'm going to just be with the whole family until he passes. Let me go home, stay with my sickly father or my elderly father until he passes. And Jesus says, hold on. You need to get in now. You need to commit yourself now. The disciples don't know, but Jesus knows this is only a three-year thing. It could take his father three, four, five years before he died. This guy could miss the entire ride with Jesus if he goes home. So you see the difference between these guys? One of them saying, I'm in. And Jesus saying, wait, count the cost. The other one said, I'm scared. And Jesus said, come on, follow me. So which camp are you in this morning? Are you in one of these camps? Are you the more, more excitable? I'm in, I'm go. Let, yeah, I'll do it. Follow you wherever you go and have a hard time meeting the level of commitment that you've, cl- you've claimed? Or are you the, um, I'm not sure I'm in for all of this. Why don't I go home and think about it for a while? Maybe a month or a year or two before I decide. Where are you in this story today? Which of these people relates to you the most? So there's a boat ride about to happen. These guys have just heard Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those of you who were here a few months ago, we started wearing tie-dye shirts, remember? Because this is Jesus totally upsetting the apple cart of the culture of his day. He's completely turning everything upside down. This, the second guy hears that story and goes, do do you realize he's messing with everything and everyone? I'm not sure I want to be part of that. The first guy says, he is really onto some stuff here. I want to go with him. And then this, this leper walks in. After Jesus finishes preaching, the lowest of the low, the leper walks right through the crowd, splitting them like the Red Sea. And as Jesus comes, he lays his hand on the guy. First guy goes, he healed him. Second guy goes, he touched him. First guy goes, it's amazing. The guy got better. And the second guy goes, don't touch Jesus. Do you see the personalities? This experience can be responded to in two opposite ways. They're still going to the boat. They're still on their way to get into the boat. Guy number one's like, let me in front, I'll get in. Guy number one's like, uh, two's like, uh, you guys go on ahead. Scholars believe you're talking about Judas number one and Philip number two. Judas, the most educated of the disciples, the one who would have the skill set to be the scribe, to be a leader among them. Remember, the disciples wanted this guy. Philip being the guy who at the three years later, end of Jesus' ministry, says to Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus says, Philip, have you been with me this long and you still haven't seen the Father? Judas and Philip? Perhaps. Then these guys get in the boat. And we said the call of Jesus is disruptive. 
And it's redemptive. And it's transformative. That the call of Jesus on your life changes things. It's disruptive. If you're going to be the scribe, and you're going to get on with this guy, what's going to happen to your scribisms? You're basically losing your job. You can't be copying texts while you're traveling around the country with this guy. You can't be standing at your post on the corner making records if you're traveling along with this guy. You're losing your job. You're done with what you've been doing. You're doing something completely different now. Do you remember when Jesus calls the disciples? He he shouts out to them as they're fishing. He says, hey, come with me and I will make you fishers of men. Disrupts everything about their life. Remember, they leave their nets and they follow Jesus that same day. As far as we know, they never are professional fishermen again. Though Peter goes back at the end and tries to get everybody back. But I want you to catch what happens that day. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Completely disrupts their lives. But catch what he said to them. I will make you fishers. Don't miss this part. I will make you fishers of men. I will take the skills you have. I will take the gifts you have. I will take the person you are. And I will redeem it for kingdom purposes. Do you see it? Fishers of fish, fishers of men are still fishing. You get the picture? This is what God does for us. He takes who we are, baptizes it, and transforms the skills and gifts we already have for the benefit of the kingdom. God doesn't try to make you into someone else. We always get this messed up. We always think when we become a believer, we have to be transformed into some other person. No, God called you to be you for him. The only difference is the for him part. I'll make you fishers of men. I'll show you how to fish for people. It'll be cool. You'll love it. He wants to make you, you for the kingdom. So now let's back up to that other question I was asking. Where are you, where are you in this? Are you doing you for the kingdom? If not, why not? If so, how's it going? Are you doing you for God? It's redemptive of your past. The things that you are ashamed of become the tools for your ministry. Because God has a great way of leading us into the path of people who are walking where we walked. Right? You know you've experienced it. I know you've experienced it. If you've chosen to follow God very regularly, God will sit you by that person in the airport. He will walk you down the street and you'll meet that person. They'll move in next door to you. And they will be experiencing the things you've experienced in the past. And as a unique gift of God, you can speak to their present from your experience. He is disruptive. He's redemptive. And he's transformative. These guys, the too self-assured guy I will follow, having second docs guy, who do they represent in here today? Nobody wants to be Judas, so take the name off. Are you the exuberant type? Are you the nervous type? So they get in the boat. 
and a tempest comes up and a storm blows and it's loud and it's noisy and water's washing into the boat and the guy they followed onto the boat has abandoned them for slumber. The guy they need most right now doesn't care enough to stay awake. And Philip's going, I told you guys, I told you so, I told you to watch out for this, this is crazy man, we're all going to die right here, right now. And Judas is going, oh, man, I'm not sure, this is pretty crazy, this is scary, it's kind of exciting and it's kind of scary and I don't know if I want to do this or not. We could die tonight. This boat could break. Satan thinks he has the, the, the future of the church in his hand. Satan thinks he's got the whole church right there and he's walking it around on the lake. And Jesus is asleep because he knows Satan has no authority over him. Jesus is resting in the assurance that God is bigger than the devil. How are we doing with that? The waves are blowing. The boat's about to swamp. How Jesus is sleeping through the water, I do not know. But somebody finally grabs him by the lapels of his holiness and shakes him. Sometimes our prayers are like that, right? He says, get up. We're all about to die here and you're sleeping. Get up. When we need you, you need to be awake, man. Jesus wakes up. He looks out at the water. Doesn't seem the least bit worried. He slogs through knee deep in the boat. Boat water outside, not water inside. That's the normative process. Slogs over to somewhere in the middle of the boat. Looks out at the sea. Looks out at the waves that are higher than he is. And he says, calm down. And the lake goes smooth and flat. And the disciples, including our doubter and Mr. Excitement, go, whoa, this is cool. This is the kind of power that only the creator of the universe has. What kind of man is this? Who is this guy that even wind stops blowing when he says so? Waves stop waving when he says so. They almost missed this boat. If Judas had said, Oh man, you have no place to sleep. You don't have a place to lay your head. I'm out. If Philip had said, no, really, my dad's really sick. I got to go. I, 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 this is too scary for me, man. I'm out. They miss this boat. And they miss seeing the maximum authority of Jesus. We think raising the dead is Jesus' best deed. But this, Matthew is holding up as he's not only more authoritative than Moses, He has the authority of God over creation. This is a pinnacle of Matthew's description of who Jesus is. 
This is the creator God walking among us. Whoa. So there's one last question to be answered. How do I get from where I am to where I want to be? I don't know if you're aware of a pastor back in Chicago named Bill Hybels. Had some difficulties lately. I think his ministry will stand for itself in the end. But Hybels tells a story when the church was young. Church in Chicago was raised up in one of the uh, suburbs of Chicago. A lot of business people coming. He said a young man came up to him. He made a call at the end of the church service. He has to make a call like, uh, y'all come forward right now. He says, I'll be down front if you want to talk to me. And that's kind of the way he made his call. And this happens all the time there. This guy comes up to him and he says, you know, I, I, I get it. I, I like the whole relationship with Jesus idea. I'm even trying. But man, I'm busy. He was an advertising executive. He was climbing the ladder fast. And he said, I don't have the time you have. He said, I get it. You, your whole life is this. So you get to read and study for a living and great, good for you. But I can't make time like that. And Hybels said to him, this is the most significant thing that can be done in your life. And the call of God on your life is to take time to be with him. So find 15 minutes or half an hour and prioritize your relationship with God. And that's the last he saw of it and the last he thought about it for a long time. It's a year later, several months at least later, guy comes up again at the end of the church service and he says, do you remember me? It's a lot of people coming and going and I don't think Hybels really remembered him. He says, you told me to try to find a way to take some time with God, just 15 minutes, half an hour. He said, uh, you told me I should do it in a place that was pleasant to me, some place that would draw me back every day. So I took you at your word. And he said, I love rocking chairs, so I went and bought a rocker. And I set it in my house in front of a window where I could look out at my backyard. I love looking out there. It's just bringing me such a peaceful moment. So I'm kind of a morning person anyway, so I decided to set my alarm a half hour earlier and get up and go. He said, since we talked, I go to that chair every morning. I take my Bible, I sit and look out the window, I drink my coffee, and I, I ask God to show me what he wants me to do in the Word. And then I read. And then I kind of think about what's been, what I've read, and I try to understand how it applies to my life today, and I make a few notes in a journal, and I go on my way. And he said, it has changed my entire life. And his wife is there with him. And his wife says, yeah, he's a completely different guy. This has changed everything there is about this guy. Time passes. He's been at this practice for a couple of years. He comes down the front again. And he says to Hybels, he says, you know, you told me to go sit in that chair and read. And I've been doing it pretty regularly. And I think God wants me. To help you build this church. 
And Hobbes goes, you better go back and sit in your chair and make sure about this. You know, uh, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but nobody gets paid around here. And the guy goes, no, I'm, I'm pretty sure. I've been asking God about it since it came up and pretty sure he wants me to do this. He said, I've done really well. If you don't pay me a dime, I should be able to make it for a while. And the guy quits his job. And he goes to work, helping the church. And they don't pay him much for a long time. He becomes one of the most significant founding partners in this church, which is now it's 20,000 people. And eventually... He comes back into a staff meeting. It's been a decade or more now. And he says, Bill, I think God is disrupting my life again. I have a friend who's planting a church in Colorado, and I think God is calling me to go out there. And he, and, and Hybels, being a very practical guy, he's the, he's the other guy who's saying, maybe I should go uh, take care of my dad before we do this thing. He says, uh, can they pay you? And his friend says, no, they can't. So they have nothing. But I feel like God is calling me to do it. He said, I have been in my chair. I've been talking to God. And God is calling me to do this. So he packs up his family, moves to Colorado, goes back to work in the advertising business so he can support himself, and he gives most of the money he makes to this little church to get it started. Decades pass. He gets cancer. It's not a cancer that's operable or treatable. It's the last sickness he's ever going to have. He calls up Bill. And they're talking. And he says to him, 20 or 30 years ago, 20 years ago, you told me just to give some time to God every day. And it would change my life. And I still have my rocker. I still sit in it every morning. It has transformed who I am. Hybels does this man's funeral. And after the funeral, there's folks gathering and chatting. And he walks up to the wife. And of course, this very important interaction that the pastor and Tom had had decades ago comes up. And Hybels asked, what are you going to do with Tom's rocker? And his wife said, that is an heirloom of God's powerful transformational hand in our family. We will pass that to our children and our grandchildren in hope that it stands for them as a marker of what God can do if we hear his call.
it will be disruptive. But because of Jesus, it is also redemptive. And ultimately, if you follow, it will transform everything about your life. Let's pray. Father God, I think we relate a lot to the people who are scared. Scared of what jumping in the boat with you looks like. Because we're pretty sure the waters are going to be stormy. Some of us have made promises we're not even sure we can keep. But today we want to commit to stay in the relationship. Some of us are going to have to buy a rocker to get this relationship started. Some of us, it's nearly worn one out. But wherever we are today, we commit to meet you there again in the morning and follow you wherever you leave and wherever you lead tomorrow. In Jesus' name.